Last week, I was in my hometown of Holland, Michigan. And while I was there, I was reminded of the story of a man named Dor Felt. Mr. Felt was a successful inventor and businessman in Chicago. He and his beloved wife, Agnes, used to spend their summer months in Michigan, near where I grew up. They would take the boat across Lake Michigan and land on the West Michigan shore where they would camp out. But after some years, they realized they had fallen in love with the area, and Mrs. Felt asked Mr. Felt if he would build her their dream home there. He agreed to it, and they embarked on quite a magnificent construction project. In fact, it took over three years to build their dream home. They were intricately involved in every detail. The architectural plans, the interior design choices, it was a real labor of love for them. Finally, after three years, in the year 1928, the Felt family was all ready to move in, to spend the rest of their years enjoying their new home. Well, they moved in, and less than six weeks later, Mrs. Felt suddenly, tragically, died. Mr. Felt was so distraught, he was so heartsick, he too died within a year of that incident. Now, why have I told you that story? Why would I begin my sermon with such a bummer of a tale? Well, it's because Jesus told a similar story one day when he encountered something he called covetousness. Covetousness. What is covetousness? Well, it's a little bit like greed. You know what greed is, don't you? It's that insatiable desire for more stuff. I want more stuff, and even when I get more stuff, I'm not satisfied. I want even more. Greed is like that, but it goes even a step further. Greed, our covetousness, doesn't just say I want more stuff. It says I want your stuff. There's usually a comparison game going on. Covetousness sees what you have and says, I want that. One of the Ten Commandments is devoted to this. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. Well, Jesus one day encountered a man with covetousness in his heart, and he gives a warning through this parable we're about to look at against covetousness. In fact, in verse 15, he says this, take care, be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Be on your guard against covetousness, Jesus says. We understand instinctually what it means to be on our guard, to guard against intruders who might come in. Just look around at our society. We have nearly ubiquitous security cameras. They're everywhere. On guard against potential intruders. But what Jesus is showing us in this scripture is that we may have already let an intruder in to our homes, to our souls, if we have covetousness going on in our souls. So don't just be aware. Don't just have your security cameras on for the intruder out there. Be mindful. Be on alert against the enemy within, covetousness, which creeps into our hearts. In the rest of the story, Jesus is depicting this warning, and not just a warning for us today, but also a promise. He gives us a warning with a promise. So let's see how the story goes to find out just 
what he means. Let's begin the story in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, when we first read this, it might seem like a pretty reasonable request, actually. There must be a household where the parents have died. And there's a young man who's come to Jesus, probably a younger brother, whose older brother has received the inheritance and he's not sharing it with his other siblings. This was actually relatively common in Jesus' time. The law said that the older brother would receive the largest portion, half or two-thirds of the inheritance, the rest of which would be distributed among the siblings according to the older brother's desires. So it seems that this is a younger sibling coming up to Jesus saying, hey, my parents died, my older brother is taking all of the inheritance. Please tell him to give me my fair share. Seems reasonable at first if you think about it. But if you scratch just beneath the surface of what's going on in this story, you begin to see maybe why Jesus reacted the way that he did to this man. Let's look even at the way he addressed Jesus. He appears seemingly out of nowhere, and he says, Teacher, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Let's just think about this for a second. Can you imagine meeting Jesus, the Son of God, face to face? You know, in the Gospels, when some people encountered Jesus, they recognized him for who he was. They said things like, Jesus, Son of the Most High God, have mercy on me. They elevate Jesus, realizing in their hearts who he truly is. But this man, he simply calls out, Teacher, Rabbi, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. See, that's one of the things that covetousness does to us, to our hearts. It demotes Jesus, it demotes God into not Savior, not Messiah, not Christ, but it demotes him simply to a a means to an end, to give us what we really want, to give us the thing our covetous hearts desire. So this young man, what he really wants is for his brother to share the inheritance with him. So he says, teacher, tell my brother to do that. And he misunderstands who Jesus really is standing right before him, the son of God. In fact, Jesus in the next verse says, who made me arbitrator over you? In other words, I'm not your lawyer. And don't we do this sometimes to Jesus? Don't we do this sometimes to God in our prayer life? Because of our covetous hearts, sometimes we demote God to becoming simply a means to an end to give us what we really want. Gina preached last week on the Lord's Prayer. You might recall when she got to that section of the Lord's Prayer where it says, give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. Gina pointed out that for some Christians, that phrase becomes the beginning, middle, and end of the entire prayer. God, give me what I need today. Let me get that promotion. 
Tell my kids to behave. Give me what I think I need. Give me what I think I want. Give me my daily bread. And we miss the whole rest of the prayer. Hallowed be thy name. You are holy. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We miss the rest of the prayer because we demote God. We demote Jesus in our prayer life, sometimes unintentionally, to simply becoming a means to get us what we really want in the material realm. But there's Jesus standing right before this young man saying, I'm not that for you. Who made me the arbiter over your affairs? And Jesus is offering the young man and he's offering all of us something far greater when he recognizes the covetousness in our hearts. Now, so far in the story, we might think that this problem, this thing called covetousness, only affects people who don't have much. That was the situation with the young man who appears out of nowhere. His older brother had gotten something, but in his covetousness, he thinks he deserves it. So he's in a scarcity mindset. He's in a poverty mindset. That's what greed was revealing. What greed was revealing is that he wanted something he didn't have, and he thought Jesus could get it for him. We might think this story is only for people who have not, but Jesus then illustrates his warning and his promise with the story of a wealthy man. And I think what Jesus is doing there is he's saying to us, whether you have or have not, greed and covetousness can be infecting your heart. So let's read this story of the rich man, this warning with a promise that Jesus offers to us in verse 19. We pick up the story. Verse 16, Jesus told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there, I will store all my grain and my goods. Actually seems pretty reasonable so far in the story. There's a a wealthy man and his harvest is doing really well. And he realizes he's not going to have enough storage capacity in his barn. So he tears them down and he builds bigger ones. So far, so good. But it's what happens next in the parable where we begin to see the problem that Jesus is pointing out. The problem isn't having a nice crop. The problem isn't earning more money. The problem is what happens next in verse 19. This man with his full barns, verse 19, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Okay. So the problem wasn't filling his barns. The problem was that he allowed his full barns, he allowed his material reality to speak to his soul reality. He allowed materialism to speak to spiritualism, and that usually goes badly for us. I picture him sitting out on his porch, looking out at his full barns, and he takes that as an opportunity to speak to his soul. See, he let his material reality speak to his spiritual reality. My barns are full. I have more than I'll ever need for years to come. Now, soul, you can relax. But don't many of us know experientially that that's a lie we tell ourselves? 
when we allow our material realities to try to dictate something to our souls, we lie to ourselves. I wonder if this man sitting on his porch, looking out at his full barns, telling his soul to relax, I wonder if his next thought was something like this. Gee, I hope the worms don't get into my barns and start eating my crops. Gee, I I hope there's no robbers or thieves around here who might come steal my crops. You see, once we think our material reality can tell our souls to relax, we begin worrying. The more stuff we have, it's more stuff to worry about. The more stuff we have can't really make us relax, ultimately, on a soul level. No, we lie to ourselves. This was the problem that Jesus is trying to show us in the man's heart. It's not having more stuff. It's thinking that more stuff will satisfy our souls. And Jesus begins pointing this man and all of us to the soul reality that all of us will face one day. Verse 20, the story continues. God said to this man, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Jesus is inviting us in this part of the story to remember that the material world around us is not the ultimate destiny for our souls. You know, it almost feels like a a wagging of the finger towards us. It almost feels like a condemnation, but we know there's no condemnation in Christ. He's not saying fool in a condemning way. He's saying fool in a way to, to reveal to us that we're missing a larger point. When we think that our souls can relax, when our material realities get a little bit better, we're missing where our souls are ultimately going to go. Our souls might be required of us tonight. Mr. and Mrs. Feld had no idea during all those three years of constructing their summer mansion that their souls were going to enter into eternity shortly after they moved into that home. God is reminding us that there is an eternal, there is an infinite perspective that we can ultimately find our rest in. Nothing in this world can really make us find our rest, but the eternal kingdom, the eternal perspective can. You know, I know a lot of people who are materially wealthy, who are anxious and never satisfied. I know some people who are materially poor, who are so at peace and have so much joy in the Lord. You know, I'm always surprised when people come back from mission trips, going to impoverished places. I've begun to just kind of expect it over the years. They come back from the mission trip and they say things like, I just don't understand it. Those people have nothing, but they're so happy. Why is that true? Well, it's because the material realities around us can't really speak to our souls. If they could, then all the people in impoverished nations would be miserable and all of us in wealthy nations would be happy. But it's not usually that way. We can find joy. We can find satisfaction in the Lord, no matter what our material reality is dictating around us. I think Jesus is talking about that, not just calling us fool to condemn us because of what he says in the very next verse, in verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Rich toward God. 
This phrase, I think, has the promise in it. It's not that Jesus is saying, don't be rich. He's saying, no, be rich in me. Be rich in God. Set your hope, set your energies, set your, 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 your anticipation, not in just the, the material things that this temporal world can provide, but in the eternal kingdom, which begins now but lasts unto eternity. Be rich toward God. I know a lot of people in this church who are rich toward God. I love seeing examples of it. I saw it on full display just a couple of months ago when COVID-19 hit and the economy was collapsing. It was March and a lot of people were seeing their barns, so to speak, get emptied out. Their 401ks, their investments, their bank accounts were all getting depleted because the economy was collapsing. But you know what I saw? I saw people give unto the Lord their tithes and their offerings more than I had ever seen before in the month of March. It was the greatest month of greatest march of giving that we've ever seen in our church. That's awesome. That means that we have people who are rich towards God. Even when the material reality around us was suddenly very unstable, many of us realized, I'm going to give resources. Some gave money. Some gave time and volunteering. Some gave groceries. Some prayed. We all stepped up and we gave more, even when our material reality could have been telling us to freak out and be anxious. But we were rich toward God. Hallelujah. See, I grew up with some well-intentioned teachers who used to tell me stories like Mr. and Mrs. Felt, who built that mansion and died, and stories like this in Scripture. And it really came across as like a guilt trip, basically saying, don't, don't try to get wealthy, don't be rich. But with those versions of the story we're missing was the promise that's embedded here. The promise that we can be rich towards God. The promise that our souls are going somewhere eternal where we will experience and taste mansions and glory and wonder and barns full of more treasure than we could ever imagine. But though all of those things will be measured in a spiritual way and they will satisfy our souls. C.S. Lewis wrote about this beautifully, and he put it this way. He said, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward, and the staggering nature of rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I love that quote, and I think it reveals the same truth that our scripture today reveals, which is that we have an eternal inheritance coming our way, far more valuable than any earthly inheritance. I wish this young man who came up to Jesus knew who he was talking to. He was talking to the Son of God 
who would soon provide for all of mankind the richest of inheritance. By dying in our place, Jesus took the inheritance we deserve, which is eternal damnation, and he gave us in exchange the inheritance he deserved, which is eternal salvation and satisfaction in the Father. That's what happened on the cross. We received the inheritance that Jesus deserved. The reason I was in Michigan last week was to celebrate my parents' 50th wedding anniversary. It was a glorious time. All my siblings were there, their spouses, and the grandkids. We all gathered around. We had to get the Alaskan family in on Zoom to include them. They weren't able to travel with us this year. But we sat around the porch table and told stories. And one night we decided to go around the table and all share a word of love or affirmation for my parents, just what their love and what their lives mean to us. We were going around the table and grandkids and siblings were sharing their words. And my one niece chiming in from Alaska said this beautiful phrase. She said, Mimi and Papa, your love for Christ inspires me to love him more. One of my siblings talked about how my my parents just, they're always willing to do the hard work on behalf of the poor, on behalf of justice. They just step in and do the work of the kingdom. When it finally came time to me to get to my word of affirmation around the table, I was just sitting there looking out over the porch and I was wondering what I would say. And I turned to them and I said, Mom and Dad, my word for you is inheritance. Inheritance. Look around this porch. This is your inheritance, and you have given us the richest of inheritance. There's a lot of people out there really concerned about how big their financial inheritance is going to be, but Mom and Dad, you have given us the most invaluable, the most precious inheritance. We get to enjoy it even now. You've given us faith in Jesus Christ. That's the inheritance. That's what it means to be rich towards God. No matter how much money you have, no matter how full or empty your barns are, we can all give the richest of inheritance to our children, to the community around us, by being rich towards God and by sharing the faith Lord, we ask that you would reshape our hearts, extract the covetousness from our souls and our hearts and our minds and our actions. Make us rich towards you. Thank you for the inheritance you've given us in Jesus Christ. Now teach us how to go out and share that with the world that so desperately needs it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.